0: Good evening, everyone. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Betsy. I'm a member here, and I will be reading our sermon scripture passage this evening. So tonight we will be reading from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 3 through 11. So I invite you to turn there in your Bible. Um, You can also follow along on the screen, or um, you can borrow one of the black Bibles in the back of the pew in front of you. If you need a Bible, we do have some blue Bibles in the lobby that you can take as our gift to you. So once again, we are reading from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 3 through 11. Be subject to the Father of spirits and live. For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. it. This is God's word.
1: Thanks, Betsy. Well, good evening, everybody. It's good to see you. Should I say good evening or... Good evening, good evening, everybody. Um, Yeah, it's good to be with you, and if you're new, joining us for the first time, uh, whether you've uh, been following Jesus for a while or you're new to church, really glad that you're with us. Uh, My name is Steve, and we are walking through the book of Hebrews, and the main theme of Hebrews that we're saying every week, uh, hopefully you're so sick of it by now, like you can repeat it immediately, Um, but it's persevere, draw near, do it together. Okay, persevere in faith, because there's actually a good chance you'll fall away, draw near to Christ, who's your present help, and then we do it together. We do it together as a community, and uh, what we're looking at this evening in verses 3 through 11 is how God uses discipline in our lives to persevere us and draw us close to him. So this passage is about discipline, and I think when we hear that God is a disciplining God, I think for most of us that evokes unpleasant feelings or imagery uh, because usually we think of discipline primarily in terms of, you know, punishment for bad behavior. So, you know, a parent grounds their teenager because they broke curfew too many times. Or a coach makes their player run wind sprints because they came late to practice. But think about, let's, let's stick with a sports metaphor and think about a different reason why a coach may have their players do wind sprints. It could be punishment to correct bad behavior, but it could also be to build up their players, Right, so for example, um, my freshman year in high school, I joined the wrestling team, and I remember my first ever match as a high school wrestler, I was 60 seconds into the match, and I remember thinking, oh my word, this is the hardest physical exertion I've ever experienced. And the only thing that kept me from just laying down on the mat was my fear of losing, and so, you know, wrestled, wrestled that evening, and I ended up winning the match. I, there were many matches that I lost, but I did win this one. And so I go up to my coach at the end of the evening, and I go, you know, so how would I do, coach? You know, expecting, like, a big pat on the back. And he just looks at me, and he goes, Reed, you looked like you were going to die <laughs> the entire time you were out there. And your opponent wasn't even that good. And I was like, <laughs> thanks, coach. Thanks for the affirmation. And then he continued, said, so let's work on it. And so what he did is he would stay with me after practice, he would drill me, he'd make me do, you know, burpees and wind sprints. And if you're a passer, you know, you go by the wrestling room and you see me with, with my coach drilling me, there's two ways to interpret that. One is, well, this is an evil coach who loves to inflict pain on one, of his, on one of his wrestlers. Or number two, well, this coach really cares about this athlete, you know, that he's willing to stay late and to train him so that he can face more difficult and, and, and harder opponents, Right. And that's the sense that this passage is talking about God disciplining us. Um, God disciplines us to build us up. And so the main point of this section here is God will allow pain or disappointment in your life in order to perfect you. That's the main point of these eight or so verses. God will allow pain or disappointment in your life in order to perfect you. And this is a mature teaching. This is not gospel 101. This is a challenging teaching, especially if there's, especially if you've been led to believe that God is essentially nothing more than a sky fairy whose main job is just to smile at whatever you do. Uh, but nonetheless, this teaching here is, as I was thinking about this, it has significant ramifications for your life because the deepest, many of the deepest and most joy filled people I know are people who really get this. And conversely, some of the most miserable people I know, especially people who grew up in the church, maybe who are still in the church, are people who misunderstand this reality uh, or who straight up reject this reality. And so it's really important. You know, Hebrews is a challenging book uh, because this author cares about us. And so it's important that Hebrews is helping us look at this, okay? And so here's how we'll walk through this passage as we think about God disciplining us for our good. Number one, we'll see the purpose of discipline. Why does God do it? Number two, how should we not respond when God disciplines us? And then number three, how should we respond? Okay, so discipline's purpose. Why does it happen? Number two, how should we not respond when we're being disciplined by the Lord? And number three, what are ways that we can respond so that God can perfect us? Okay, so first, number one, uh, why does God discipline us? So uh, to frame this a bit, look at verse seven. Uh, It is for discipline that you have to endure. So this word endure gets at this idea of this is a season. In other words, like often when we think of discipline, we think of a one-to-one correlation between, you know, we do something bad and then God punishes us. He's just, he's waiting up there to, to spank us if we do something bad. What we know contextually in the book of Hebrews is, as far as we know, it's not like the Hebrews have gone morally off the rails. And so the author is saying, you know, you guys are being bad Christians, so God's out to get you. That's not what's happening. The Hebrews, I mean, they're just living the normal Christian life, but they're experiencing social persecution, uh, probably physical per- persecution as well, and so they're, they're going through just a season of pain, and the author is trying to help them learn, you know, okay, how how do you make sense of this? And so in modern terms for you, you know, so think about less of like, oh, I did a sin, so now God's punishing me. It's more of a, you're, just, you're in a season, you didn't ask for it, you certainly didn't want it. Okay, it could be, you know, things aren't going well as you hoped with your career, or with one or more of your relationships. Um, it could be more intense suffering. You know, like you or a loved one getting a terminal diagnosis. Okay, this is a season of either just disappointment, like oh, I hoped for this and didn't get it, or intense suffering. Okay, so it's a season. It's not necessarily related to something you did. And now, okay, how are we to, to think about the, the purpose of something like this? And so look at the second half of verse 10. But God, okay, but he, God, but he disciplines us for our good. Okay, what's our good? That we may share his holiness. Okay, that, that may sound boring to you. Like, that doesn't sound very good, okay? But think about what's the holiness of God? The The holiness of God, it's the sum of his supreme attributes. So it's his wisdom. It's his beauty. It's his happiness. It's the purity and depth of his character, And so what we're being told here is when we go through a painful or disappointing season, God will use that to reproduce these same attributes in us. And so here's how it works. Um, All of us have impurities in our character. Um, Pride, vanity, a penchant to jump to false conclusions too quickly about other people, just general self-centeredness. And often there are things within us that we don't even know are there. They're so far down. And so what God will use, we saw this in First Peter when we looked at it a year ago, God will allow pain or trying times to draw out those impurities in our character and bring them to the surface and then scrape them off to then replace them with the glory of his character. And so, so it looks a little bit like this, just using, using an autobiographical example, uh, so, growing up, I was generally the good kid, and this isn't objective fact, okay? This is the skewed vision of, like, 17-year-old Steve, okay? He thinks he's the good kid, because he's not doing drugs like one of his siblings. I hope they're not, li- they don't end up listening to this online, okay? He's not, he's not getting horrible grades like another one of his siblings. Uh, he's even evangelizing and telling other people the gospel, and even gets to see some people come to faith, okay? Then, I get married, and uh, many of you know this, but the first seven or so years of our marriage was filled with medical and financial bomb after another. Like, it felt as if we would just be getting up back on our feet, and then we would get knocked over by another one. And finally, after three, four, five years of this, I mean, I remember a moment where I signed up on the floor of my apartment, and I was so angry I was so angry at God. And, you know, it's a longer story, but... And I I told him this, and essentially what he revealed to me was there was an entitlement I had that I didn't even realize was there. That, okay, if I, you know, am generally morally okay, and I tithe, and I obey you here, and I share the gospel, then you owe me, you know, especially in my 20s, okay, a healthy life, a happy life, a financially secure life. And so what God showed me in that moment, and it was so painful to realize, but I mean, yes, did I love Jesus? Yes, there was a huge part of me that loved Jesus, but there was a significant part of me as well that viewed the, the main role of Jesus is essentially just to give me the paycheck for doing everything right. And, you know, as a result of that season, while you know, do I still have room to grow? Any of you who know me, you know, no. yes, I still have room to grow. But I mean, my vision for life has expanded, so I'm not—I'm no longer as just immediately focused on my own wants and fears as I used to be. My humility and joy in God is much greater than it used to be. My compassion is much greater than it used to be. And so it will be for you. Because what God does is he will use trying times, disappointment, and pain t- to scrape off impurities in your character and replace them with the glory of his image, which is what you were made for. Okay, We have to remember, knowing Jesus and being shaped by Jesus, it's not just reasonable, it's desirable. It's actually what we want. Okay, and so, so that's the purpose of discipline. Okay, there's, there's nothing better, and I mean just as a quick sidebar as you think about this is actually how we become our fullest, most happy, truest selves. And when you think about popular notions of finding your true self, which usually looks like something to the effect of you know, self-expression in a way that other people see and then approve of you, right on some kind of public platform, this is way different than that. it's far less public. Okay, often less spectacular looking, but yet far better and far deeper when it becomes when it comes to you becoming the person God has is making you into be. Okay, so that's the first reason, the purpose of God bringing or allowing pain and disappointment in our lives. Okay, so number two, when these trials come, how should we not respond? And uh, we see this concentrated in verse five. Okay, have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons or children? Okay, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. So the author is a good counselor, and he knows, generally speaking, like the the two main pitfalls we're going to fall into when we go through a, a painful or just a disappointing season. And the first thing we see is, uh, and he's quoting Proverbs, uh, "My son, do not re- do not regard lightly the discipline d- the discipline of the Lord, and regard lightly. Uh, perhaps a better translation for that phrase would be to despise. Okay, to despise the discipline of the Lord. So if you've ever seen an intern in your company, you just think they have nothing to learn from you if you're overseeing them, and so they just like they can never t- you can they can you can never teach them anything. They get angry when you correct them. Okay, that's what, maybe you are then in turn, hopefully not. Okay, that, that's what despising someone's discipline looks like. Okay, you just, I don't have anything to learn. I, I don't need to grow. Okay, and number two, nor be weary. And oh man, this hits home. Nor be weary when repro- reproved by him. So if one way is to get angry or just, you know, to, to put up our, our, our hand toward God, the other way to be weary, it's in context. Essentially what this means is when you're going through a painful time, to become weary is, is to become so faint-hearted because you no longer believe God loves you. And that's the other area. I mean, of course, right? Because if you're in a trying time, how could God love you? And we're going to come back to that. Um, but one of the clearest places we, we see this play out is in the book of Job. And in the book of Job, in the first chapter, how the this, how this scene is set is it narrates about this guy Job. And we're told that he's, he's wealthy He has a great family, he is generally healthy, and he fears and worships God. And then the scene cuts to Satan strolling into the throne room of God, which is, that's just interesting to me, by the way. Apparently Satan can just walk around God's throne room. And so he's in God's throne room, and what God says to Satan is he says, you know, hey Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There's none like him. This is chapter 1, verse 8. He's a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. And then how Satan responds, it's so astute. Okay, in in verse 9. Satan answers the Lord and says, Does Job worship God for nothing? Have you not put a hedge around him in his house and all that he has? You've blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. You hear what Satan's saying? Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not blessed him? Because... What Satan knows is that even the most mature of believers, there is something deep within us where, like, of course we're happy with God when everything's going well. But there is something in us that does think God is essentially a Santa Claus. And his job is just to bless us. And so when we go through an extended season of just not getting things or people or whatever that we hope for, like the 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 inertia of our souls it's just going to pull us toward either despising his discipline right or worrying like does god actually love me and so that should be telling you know when you when you start to fall there i mean satan knows this and this was the original lie in the garden you know does god actually care about you and so is so those are ways we're not to respond, right? To, to fall into despondency or to, you know, just to despise the Lord. And so we're about to move into how we should respond, but I'm just going to pause here for a moment because, you know, one of the privileges of being your pastor is I know your stories. And as I was looking at this week, at this passage this week, you know, one of the things I was thinking is, okay, like I get this conceptually, God can use pain to perfect me. But why does it have to be so painful sometimes? You know, and I know if this is true for me, then it's even more true for many of you in this room. And so I just I want you to know, like as I'm as I was sitting in my office this week, many of your names were coming to mind. I was praying for you, and in case it's not clear, this is not a game to me. Okay? As we talk about something as as serious as as pain and suffering, and so just two things to help ground us, and we're going to get to some more. We're not going to explain everything. Of course, we're not, you know, in the next 10-15 minutes, but two realities that we have to keep in mind as we think about a painful or a trying time, and the first thing is that a world filled with sorrow is not the way God designed things to be, okay? It's not the way he created things to be, and the way that sorrow and pain came into our world Was through what? When we decided to be indifferent toward God, to sin against God. So if you ever wonder, you know, why does the Bible talk about sin and Jesus so much? Pain is why it talks talks why it talks about sin all the time. Okay, because that's the reason why we hurt so much. And so when sorrows and and sufferings come, don't hear you know. Okay, don't despise God. Don't get angry at God. don't Don't hear it as a call to just stuff your emotions, and to act courageous. And we know this because of the supreme example of Jesus. When Jesus God himself was on the earth and he found out unexpectedly that his really good friend Lazarus died, remember how Jesus stood outside of his tomb with a big smile and said, praise the Lord, all things work together for good. That's not what he said. He didn't even, he didn't speak. He shook with grief as he hugged Mary and his tears fell to the ground. And so when sorrows come, I mean, you, can, you should imitate your Savior and cry out to the Lord and say, these things are not the way things were designed to be. So that's the first thing, okay? But the, the second thing to remember is that while it's not the way things were designed to be, God is doing something about it. That's why Jesus came. That's why we have a new earth to look forward to. And in the meantime, God will use it redemptively, It can be be scary to think about God, there being a connection between suffering and our God. Okay, but the other reality, okay, God's not in control of suffering, that's even more scary. And while there are, are of course, a lot of unanswered questions here, what the emphasis of this passage is on how can we respond well during it, and so so that's what we're looking at it during this time, okay? Um, It's interesting, you know, even, um, I was reading some secular scholars recently, and they were saying that, one of the biggest holes in the secular faith system is when it comes to suffering, the secular faith doesn't give its adherence like any way to make meaning out of suffering because if the meaning in life and, you know, humanism, uh, which, which it is, is basically the most immediate personal happiness in the here and now as possible, then suffering is nothing but an intrusion and a rude interruption to that story. And so really, it's mainly a narrative for the privilege because what are you supposed to tell those who are suffering all the time, who did grow up in broken homes? Okay, but through the gospel, we have a Savior who weeps with us in our sorrows. We've been seeing this all throughout Hebrews. And number two, it's not the end of our story. And it, he will use it to actually draw us deeper into the meaning of our lives, which is knowing God and enjoying him forever. Okay, so, so that we, just, we have to remember those things okay, as we think about these hard things. So how, how not to respond despising the Lord, um, growing so weary and faint of heart. This is really hard. This is really hard. Okay, but so how how should we respond when pain and disappointments come? And uh, just, this isn't a formula, uh, but three words that are helpful to remember when you're going through a trying time. And it's community, growth, and comfort. Okay, community, growth, and comfort. So community. uh, Look at verse 4. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And at first reading, it looks it looks like a really cold statement. You know, okay, yeah, you think you're suffering, well, you haven't shedded your blood yet. And like, how in the world did your professors graduate you from counseling school? Okay, but the essence of what he's saying is this: you've been suffering for a long time, and when you suffer for a long time, your thinking gets fuzzy. I think any of you know this, right? Even on a small scale, if somebody irritates you or angers you or something really upsetting happens and you you just get so upset on an evening, you know, you're thinking of doing all these crazy things and then either you wake up the next day or a few days go by or you speak to someone level-headed who's just looking at your situation more objectively and then you start to look back and you go, like, what was I thinking? And that's what the author's saying here. When we go through hard times, we're prone to forget some of the most important realities, okay, which is what? Verse six, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Okay, so what we need to remember is you're a child of God. And this is why we need community because when we're going through a heart, it's so hard to see outside of your own disappointment or pain. And so we need people, or persevere, join, or do it together. We need people who are thinking clearly Okay, to come alongside us and remind us, okay, even if you can't see a reason, you're God's child. Okay, even, if you can't see, if you, even if you can't see a reason, r- remember verse 8? Um, if you're left without discipline, then you're an illegitimate children. Okay, it, w- it would be weird if I ran around Clarendon just disciplining everyone else's kids. Why? Because you don't discipline children who aren't yours. And so we, we need people to remind us, that if your life is always smooth sailing, that may actually not be the good sign you think it is. It may be a sign you're, you're not, you have to be careful here, but it may be a sign you're not God's child, because a good parent disciplines their child, okay? It's the negligent parent, or the lazy parent, or the fearful parent, right, who doesn't want their child to, to not like them anymore, who doesn't exercise discipline for their child's good. So we need community to remind us of these things when it comes to our pain and suffering. Uh, Number two, community. Uh, First number one, community. And number two, uh, growth. And so this has been the theme of this passage, right? God God uses seasons of suffering to perfect us. And this was something that was helpful for me. Um, Like, look, look at verse 11, which summarizes it. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And the word discipline that's used in this verse, okay, all discipline seems painful to them rather than pleasant, but it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. The word for discipline here is the Greek word paideia. And this is really good because what does that word make you think of? It's the word where we get our modern modern term pediatrics from. Because I think pediatrics, A, a loving doctor who in care for a child? Okay, helps them out of a season of sickness. May give them shots, okay, to help them be well. And so, in, in in terms of our heavenly Father, we have a heavenly Father who exercises pediatric care in our lives to make us healthy. Put put pretty starkly, God saying, "I love you enough." to exercise spiritual chemotherapy on your soul so that it, while it may feel like you are dying, it's actually going to save you. Even if it means I need to burn away all these shallow pleasures and the false comforts that you look to for your comfort, because none of those things will be there when the worst things come except for me. Okay, if I could just like be honest with you guys, when your spouse or best friend gets a terminal diagnosis before you're ready, your favorite hobby is not going to save you. Okay, when something so painful comes into your life, okay, the money in your bank account is not going to save you. And so God says I'm going to use Smaller doses of pain and disappointment to transfer your anchor onto the only one who will never disappoint, which is myself. Okay, it, it's hard, but it, it's so good and it's so important. Um, there's, there's a lady named Elizabeth Kubler-Ross who she developed the five stages of grief and uh, she, she puts it really eloquently when she says, the most beautiful people we have known are those who have known defeat, known struggle, known loss, and have found their way out of the depths. These persons have a sensitivity and an understanding of life that fills them with gentleness and a deep loving concern. Beautiful people do not just happen. Isn't that so true? And God cares for us enough to make us beautiful people. And it's so counterintuitive, you know, especially in our culture of comfort, like we talked about last week, to let God do this. Um, but, you know, it's not just good for you, it's good for other people as well, okay, to grow in times of disappointment and pain. Um, just the other week, I, I read something to the effect of, the, as, as a pastor, it was this person speaking to pastors, and they said, the best thing you as a pastor can give the congregation you lead is your ongoing transformation into Christ-likeness. That That is so true on so many levels. And it's not just true for pastors. Okay, the best thing you can do for your boss, for your family, for your spouse, if you have one, for your friends, is your ongoing transformation into Christlikeness. It really is the best thing you can give them. And so we need to let God do this in our lives. Okay, so that's the second thing. Okay, we need to be willing to grow. And then number three, okay, so community, growth, and then finally number three, comfort. Okay, perhaps most importantly, we have to remember comfort. And it's interesting in verse three, okay, why do you think the author starts this section on discipline by saying, consider him who's him? It's Jesus, Consider Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. And I think the reason the author starts this section on like actually allowing God to use pain or hardship in our life to to perfect us, by saying, "Consider Jesus," and I, I think it's this, and it's because of the question we alluded to earlier, because it is true, when you go through. Hope that's dashed on the, ra- on the rocks, after hope that 's dashed on the rocks like over and over and over again. there does come a point, I mean where you have to ask the question, Like, God, do you, do you hate me? Are you punishing me? Are you forsaking me? Like, am I your child? Because if I am your child, it seems like you're being a pretty bad parent right now. And so the reason why the author starts the section with "consider Jesus," because without those two words, "consider Jesus," we would not have a concrete answer to those questions. Have you forsaken me? I don't know. Are you punishing me? I don't know. But because consider Jesus, the answer to those questions is a definitive no. Because what did Jesus do? Okay, it was on the cross that Jesus didn't face pain as loving discipline, but actually as being forsaken. And God the Father, in love, was willing to give up his son. I have a son. I have two sons now, and I don't think I would give them up for anyone. <laughs> and God wanted you enough to give up his son so that you know like, that's the answer to the question. Does God love me? Because, yes, while it may be unclear exactly how everything's going to work out, we don't know. But it can't be because He doesn't love us. And any pain coming into it can't be punitive. It's not because God's irritated at you, maybe like one of your parents was. Okay, because Jesus bore it all. And so, in Jesus, what you have is the surety that God's discipline in your life is only formative and for your good and in Jesus you also have the surety that you have the only God who knows what it's like to cry the only God and more than that i love it right before this section end of verse 2 jesus is seated at the right hand of, at the right hand of the throne of god speaking of his resurrection so jesus didn't come just to bear your punishment He didn't come just so that he could sympathize with your sorrows. He didn't just come to cry your tears as a means to an end. He also rose from the dead so that one day he won't just cry your tears, he will also dry them. On that great day when the gray curtain of this world is pulled back and he pulls you home where there's no more pain or sorrow. And so consider Jesus. Okay, through in him you do have surety that when pain or just when disappointments come, God will use those things to perfect you into his very image. Okay, let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is It's really hard. There's really hard teaching in a lot of ways, God. Um, it's also so good, uh, but it's so hard. And so, uh, Lord, I pray that you will be with every single person in our church and uh, help them to draw near to you uh, through whatever they're going through. And will you stamp into their souls um, the assurance that uh, if there's something they really want right now and it's just not happening, uh, it is not because you've forsaken them. Um, but you are with them and you invite them to come to you uh, with these things that they want and you are using all these things in our lives uh, to one day uh, make us look fully like Jesus and we thank you for making meaning out of our sorrows and for one day drying all of our tears. And it's In Jesus' name we pray, amen.